Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons of Innovation, the podcast that brings you valuable tips and advice to help you succeed on your innovation journey. I am Mo, an entrepreneur, a mentor, and the host of this podcast. In today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Rita McGrath, who for those who do not know her, she's a world top expert in innovation and growth strategies. She's a longtime professor at Columbia Business School and an award-winning author of several books, including the book we will be discussing today, Seeing Around Corners. Rita is consistently ranked among the top 10 management thinkers in the world and was ranked number one for strategy by the prestigious Thinker 50 Hours. Her work is also regularly published in Harvard Business Review. Basically, in short, Rita is a true innovation expert who I am delighted to have with me today. Rita, welcome to today's show. It's a pleasure to be here. Just to kick this off, I'd like to know a little bit more about your background. Can you share a little bit about that? How did you get into the innovation and the strategy world? Uh, Well, unintentionally, as so often happens with these things, I I did my undergraduate degree in political science and got a master's uh, in public administration. And my first jobs out of school were, uh, well, on the one hand, I did a little bit of entrepreneurial work. And then on the other hand, I joined the city of New York. And um, when I was there, my main job was helping oversee the digital transformation, basically. It's what we would call it today. We didn't call it that then, but we would call it digital transformation of a procurement department. And that got me interested in large-scale organizational change. So when I came to do my PhD, I was housed in the entrepreneurship department at the Wharton School. And I had this idea that I was going to do my PhD thesis on the subject of the science of implementation. And my thesis advisor-to-be, Ian McMillan, said he couldn't think of anything more boring than the science of implementation. And then I explained why I thought it was so interesting. He said, well, really what you're describing is corporate innovation. It's you know doing new things as a large established entity. And that really got me started on corporate innovation. We got a big grant from Citibank to do a three-year study of ventures at the bank. And that really solidified my interest. So that was my unlikely segue into studying corporate entrepreneurship. Well, that's quite interesting. Uh, I was under the assumptions that corporate innovation studies, at the very least, wasn't really that widespread, apart from maybe recently. Was this the case, or how did you see that evolving? Well, back in the day when I started doing my PhD, all the cool kids in strategy were studying, you know, industry, right? So order of entry analysis and R&D intensity and those kinds of factors. And there was a small group of us. You're absolutely right. There was not a very big community of people studying corporate entrepreneurship at the time. Um, it was seen as sort of the, the the odd thing you did now and again. And if anybody thought about it at all, they thought about it in terms of R&D. They didn't think about it in terms of an ongoing system of getting into new spaces, which I think is much more how we think about it today. And uh, in the intervening years, what I think has happened is that as competitive advantages have gotten compressed, people now realize they need innovations more frequently than perhaps they did before. And And the field has really expanded. But when I first started, there were not very many people working on it. Uh, Robert Bergelman would have been an example, um, Mike Tushman. Uh, But, but, you know, you could name them on the fingers of two hands. Right. But innovation seems right now to be at the core of every corporate strategy. Uh, But then it feels like large corporates still struggle with innovation, despite of it being included in their strategy. 
Why do you think that is the case? Well, innovation is uh, odd to manage if you're used to operating an established company because it tends to be relatively small in the beginning. Uh, it doesn't look all that important. It doesn't produce predictable results. There's a lot of things that don't work out before you finally find the one that does. And so if you're a manager who's been steeped in you know, management by exception and you meet your numbers and you hit your goals and there's this huge Uh, emphasis on being right, if that's how you've been brought up as a manager, then these innovation things seem too small, too unpredictable, too risky. Why would I want to do that? And I would say also a lot of organizations have still not figured out how to appropriately incentivize and reward people who do innovation work. Right. And we had quite a few conversations previously that exactly hit on that spot. With that maybe in mind, let me bring this conversation to your recent book, Seeing Around Corners. And just to start, I'd like to ask you, why did you decide to write that book uh, and maybe at a high level to share what was the problem you wanted to address? Well, I think the inspiration for the book clearly goes back to Andy Grove's wonderful book, uh, Only the Paranoid Survive, uh, talking about inflection points in uh, the 90s when Intel was in this harrowing transition from making memories to making microprocessors. And there hadn't really been much done on it since then. And the idea just kept coming up and up in my brain. So the way I write books is, you know, I'll take a lot of notes about a lot of different things. And eventually one idea will kind of edge in front of the others. And this one did. And the thing that crystallized the concept of a book in my mind was when a friend sent me a, uh, an article and it was called, What If You Changed the World and Nobody Noticed? And in the article, it describes all these incredibly important inflection points in economics and, and history. But it took years before anybody really realized what they meant. So if you take air travel, right, after the Wright Brothers historic flight, it took years before anybody realized that if you could have predictable flying, that would change the way you used railroads, it would change the way you transported goods, it would change the way, you know, borders were managed, and, 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 but it took a long time. And so it is with most major inflection points. Um, The first observation I'd make is somebody always sees them, somebody always sees the weak signals and picks up on what they might mean. But in the early stages, it's really hard to separate the signal from the noise. So even though the weak signals are there, we may not know which ones are important and not. Uh, The second thing I would observe is that they feel as if they've you know emerged of nowhere and they're they're you know having a huge effect on us overnight but there's always this long trail and so the the metaphor for the book is uh, the Ernest Hemingway line uh, that he used in the book The Sun Also Rises and one character says to another well how did you go bankrupt and the response was well gradually and then suddenly maybe before we dig deeper it will be helpful if you can define what inflection points really are Well, the way I define an inflection point is it's a change typically in an environment external to your organization that exerts a 10x shift on something that used to be true. So, you know, a few typical things would be the presence of these digital in platforms like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all the others have dramatically shifted the economics of communications. So, you know, 30 years ago, if you wanted to get a video message to 100 million people, it would cost a fortune. You'd have to be, you know, News Corp or MGM Mayor or something because you had to have, you know, film cameras with burly people lugging them around the world and you'd have to get them replicated in an analog form. And it just it, it, inconceivable, right? 
now with YouTube, the internet and whatnot, two people with a fairly cheap smartphone and equipped with video can actually become worldwide stars. And you know, that's a shift in the environment that is unprecedented. And so it, it changes the nature of media, advertising, celebrity. Um, and I could go on, but it's that kind of thing which, which changes the envelope of possibilities. Now, again, this did not happen overnight. When YouTube was first commercialized, or it wasn't even commercialized, it was somebody's hobby. <laughs> when it first started to be, you know, something that was out around in the world. And if, you know, if I'd said to you, oh, YouTube, my God, that's going to destabilize the global media environment, you would have looked at me and said, Rita, cat videos, that's what YouTube is. <laughs> and a lot of it still is cat videos today. But what we don't appreciate, I think, sometimes is that something like that, which has the effect of democratizing and distributing access to these communication channels has had a fundamentally transformative effect, you know, both good and bad on how we communicate, who we believe, what truth is, who gets to tell truth, who's, who are the gatekeepers now? You know, there's a lot of really interesting issues raised by this shift in the economics of the production of video. And you could take multiple sectors and just go through and see how digital in particular has had those kinds of consequences. You know, as you were talking about uh, YouTube's example, I couldn't help it but to think about Clay Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma. So I wanted to ask you, was there any influence from Clay uh, on your work? Of course, Clay and I are old friends, or were, were I guess I should say, because he's unfortunately passed away. Um, he and I were working on very similar ideas back in the 90s. And in fact, his original article on disruptive innovation came out the same year as my original article on discovery-driven planning. So they were within months of each other in the Harvard Business Review, which I thought was really funny. And uh, we both really appreciated each other's perspectives. So Clay really liked the way that I broke the innovation process down into pieces, rather than try to pretend we have some grand plan. We have a direction, but within that direction, we're going to do uh, test and learn much more systematically. And I thought his concept of the disruptive effects of innovation was absolutely brilliant. And of course, discovery-driven planning is a theory you are famous uh, for. Maybe can I ask you to zoom a little bit into that? just for those who might not know that theory. Sure. So discovery-driven planning actually had its inspiration in a series of studies I was doing of corporate flops. So these are the big, giant, bold innovations that were supposed to change the world from companies who you would think knew what they were doing, and yet they failed. And you have to lose your parent company at least $50 million to get into my flops file. That's my case study to guide that I... And it was things like Euro Disney um, and uh, Bic Perfume, Zap Mail back in the day. And yet, you know, if you look at the pattern, it continues and continues. And so my colleague and I looked at these multiple case studies and we're scratching our heads saying, why are these smart, you know, intelligent people in these really well-regarded companies making such terrible mistakes. And what we found was that they were planning as though they had a platform of experience when what they had was a bunch of assumptions. And what we realized was when you're in a world of very high assumptions relative to knowledge, your ability to plan very far out in the future is really limited. So these companies made a bunch of classic mistakes. So the first one was treating assumptions as though they were facts giving these projects all the resources they needed up front, which meant they didn't they didn't have the pressure to learn. They could just spend money and they could spend their money without spending their imagination, uh, creating big teams so that these things kind of ch 
charged along. And then the whole thing planned with a kind of a damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. We're not going to look right or left. And the last critical ingredient was leaders personally committed to the success of this highly uncertain thing. And so we said, well, what if you planned, but planned in a way that respected the fact that you really don't know what you're doing, that, that it's highly uncertain. And what we came up with was a five-part process. Uh, the first part was, well, what would success look like, right? And then let's work backward into what would have to be true to realize that success. The second part was doing some benchmarking. So, you know, there's no way you're going to get 100% of the addressable market. So let's think about what's realistic. Then operationally, what, what would you have to do? What are the ideas that would have to be true that you could actually execute against for this thing to happen? Then there's an assumption tracking. So making an assumption checklist so that you can go back and say, ah, here's what we thought at the time. What have we learned since? And the most important part of the technique is to plan two checkpoints. So you plan to the next checkpoint with a lot of precision, but then when you get to that checkpoint, you stop, you look around, you say, what have we learned? And then you replan, and you may discover that you need to take a different action than you had thought. And I call that by the acronym race. So maybe you need to redirect. Maybe you need to accelerate. Maybe you've discovered something's really great and time to move is now. Uh, maybe you just need to continue, or maybe you need to exit. And so every time we hit a critical checkpoint, you say you go through the race process and you say, is one of those actions more warranted than not? So it's an attempt to really free people from this need to be right in a situation where they can't be, to operate with discipline, even though you're making assumptions, and to be kind to each other when things don't work out the way you expected. Because in a high uncertainty environment, things are not going to work out the way you expect. Uh, I do think those days such frameworks are being used more by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs uh, as it offers some guidance on how to go about innovation or starting uh, a new uh, venture. Uh, and of course, we have been seeing similar concepts coming up and building on your work, uh, such as the uh, Lean Startup. Yeah, very similar concepts. Well, Eric Ries, who wrote that book, was Steve Blank's student of discovery-driven planning. So it all kind of goes together like that. So going back to inflection points, you mentioned that often there are some indicators before they actually happen. Uh, could you share some of those indicators to help companies or executives to spot them in advance? Sure. So, I mean, what you want to think about are what are your leading indicators? What are the, the things that would suggest a particular future scenario is becoming more or less uh, likely? So let's say you're in the business of um, making products that are used by babies or more specifically used by parents of babies. Um, well, one thing you'd want to be paying attention to is what do population dynamics look like? How has the pandemic affected those? And there was some early conversation about, oh, you know, there's going to be these pandemic babies because everybody's at home with nothing to do. But as it turns out, a lot of people are at home, but they've got way more to do than they. And uh, and you've got economic insecurity and, 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 and. So one of the things you might want to think about is what are the indicators, the leading indicators that we may be up for a baby bust. And you look at things like women having to shoulder a larger burden at home. You look at the fact that fertility clinics have been closed. You might consider that, you know, with so many people now um, being forced to combine work and childcare and, you know, all the crisis of life in one small space that people might decide not to have kids at all or enlarge their families. And so if you lay out the specific things that would have to be true for a specific future event to happen, what you'll find is it becomes very clear. 
you know, it's not this deep, shrouded, foggy mystery. You can look at specific things. And the beautiful thing about something like demographics is, you know, you know exactly how many three-year-olds there will be three years from now because they're all going to be born this year. <laughs> so demographics is reliably, you know, uh, quantitative. So I wonder then, why do you think companies are bad then at spotting those inflection points? Well, there are a number of reasons, but I think the dominant one is actually part of what made these companies successful to begin with. So, you know, any organization is born at a particular point in time and some things are possible and some things are not. And as you develop a recipe for success, what you pay attention to is those things that your experience tells you are associated with that success. And uh, so take traditional um, consumer packaged goods companies, you know, say like a Campbell's soup or something, um, you know, you know all about putting things in cans and running logistics and how to keep the food safe and how to keep it fresh. And you know about building big brands on television advertising. And these are the things that have made you successful. These are the things that are on your mind. And so when a major shift comes along in consumer behavior, which had the effect of changing the profitability of grocery stores from the, the middle of the store, to the edges, you know, when people really came in and said, no, I want fresh, I want organic, I want unprocessed, I want, you know, nutrient-free, probiotic, not, not nutrient-free, uh, pollutant-free, probiotic yogurt that sings and dances and God knows what else we're looking for. But, you know, we're not buying Velveeta cheese in a can anymore uh, or Campbell's soup in a can uh, anymore, um, or we're not as much as we once did. And so I think when, you know, but if your whole life is all about soup, right, and you try to introduce the most modest innovation... I remember uh, back when I was doing my doctorate program, uh, one of my colleagues was studying what she called thought worlds in companies. And this happened to be at Campbell's Soup. And there was an innovation group in the company that was trying to introduce frozen soup. And, you know, same basic kind of technologies, but a completely different supply chain, a completely different part of the grocery store. And to tear the canned soup, guys, talk about the frozen soup. It was they had talked about Martians that landed from somewhere completely unknown because it was such a different world to them. And they, they were experts, you know, at canned soup. They had no knowledge of frozen soup. And so it was like a different world. And I think so, too, with so many companies that have gotten... They don't just get comfortable with the way things are. That That's all they see. They don't even see that there is a big wide world changing around them. I think this is a good segue for me to ask about another uh, question. In your first chapter, you say that snow melts from the edges uh, in reference to the fact that executives are often busy with their day-to-day -day work uh, and that makes it hard for them to see what's happening around the periphery of their organization. But what I like is that you share some practices to help those managers to see around those corners. Can I ask you maybe to share a few of those with me? Well, absolutely. I think the first priority is you have to make time for it. You know, if you spend your whole existence wrapped up in email and in meetings and on Zooms, you know, you, you could have an elephant born in the room next door and you're not even going to see it. So the first thing is you have to get away from those things and go out and take a look. So, uh, you know, be curious. I think the first principle is really figure out how you personally can get direct exposure to the phenomenon. And there's a lot of ways of doing that. Um, I know one CEO who once a month, he would have his computer system uh, randomly select 20 employees in his very large company from all over the world. And this is before COVID, obviously, but he would fly them to wherever he happened to be. And he'd sponsor a big, you know, three hour breakfast for, oh. yeah. And, and the requirement was, you know, everybody 
got fed, but the, the after, in the after breakfast conversation, everybody would go around this table of 20 people and everybody would talk about what they see in their region, where could we do better, where were we really strong, you know, what were best practices they could share. But it gave him the opportunity to really get right into the, the heart and soul of the organization without a lot of bureaucratic buffering in between. Another example I absolutely love is the German metals firm Klockner, and their CEO was absolutely on the warpath about digital. He wanted to do a digital transformation, but he was concerned that his message would get sort of diluted by the layers of management between him and the frontline staff. And so what he decided to do was he implemented a company-wide instance of Yammer. He called it non-hierarchical communication. And he made it very, very clear that anybody, literally anybody in the company, now you have to think this is a over a hundred year old German company. They're you know, hierarchy is sort of in their blood, but anybody in the company could drop him a note and he would respond. And I believe at headquarters, he had the instructions that the lower the sort of person's hierarchical position, the higher the priority it would get in his queue. Uh, yeah. And so he very, very deliberately said, I want to hear from you. I want to hear directly from you. I'll respond. And the thing about Yammer is, you know, like, or Slack or any of those tools is you don't have to write war and peace. Somebody could just write him, hey, you know, I noticed we disappointed a customer today because this happened and I think we could do better. And he would respond and say, that's a great observation. You know, if we had a digital technology, that's something that could have prevented that kind of exchange. So people are are not afraid to bring forth um, stories and, and talk about what's going on for real. Well, this is a very good point. But at times what happens in organization is that when managers sit with some of the executive, they might not necessarily speak up or they even share a filtered version of what they actually see around them. And that makes it harder for executive to see the real problem. So why do you think that is the case and how companies should address that? Well, you absolutely see it. You see it in business. You see it in politics. It's um, a violation of the rule that you should try to have psychological safety uh, in your workplaces. And this was a concept developed by my good friend Amy Edmondson back in the 90s. And what we've learned since then is if people are afraid to speak up, really bad stuff happens. You know, things get missed, mistakes get made that don't get corrected, systems with flaws are allowed to continue, and, 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 and. And I mean, lack of psychological safety has been shown to be a factor in airplane crashes, uh, large accidents at major plants, um, public safety, you know, just a hunt of healthcare, huge in healthcare. Um, and so what Amy's tapped into, I think, is an enormously important part of high performance human systems, which is that if we don't have the data, you know, and the data are often uncomfortable data, but if we don't have the data, we can't make it better. We can't fix it. Absolutely. And I will try to bring Amy Edmondson to speak about this concept as psychological safety is very important for organizations in general uh, and for innovative teams and high-performing teams in specific. Uh, going back to your book, I'd like to ask what really the innovation proficiency scale that you share in Chapter 7 is about and why it is important for large companies to know at which innovation scales they are and how they can move probably from one level to another. Yeah, so the innovation proficiency scale was basically built out of frustration that people had when they said, well, I, I have no idea where I stand with respect to innovation. You know, am I very good? Am I very bad? Like, well, how would I know? And so my colleagues sat down and said, well, if you think about building an innovation proficiency, so let's say a company is, you know, 30, 40 years old, 
core business has done very well. They haven't really had a lot of pressures. Um, how would they know where they actually stood on the ability to create uh, innovation? And so we start off with level one, which is basically a regulated monopoly where you have one sales conversation a year and that's with your regulator. And other than that, you just operate, right? That's your job. And then you get to stages two and three and it's more sort of innovation theater and some experimentation, a few isolated incidences. But we argue when you want to build an innovation proficiency and what that means is that you your rate of producing new things inside your organization is as rich as the rate of new things being imposed upon you outside your organization. So your inside and your outside mirror each other. Innovation is not one person. It's not one um, approval. It's not one uh, a plant. It's not one, you know, like, I mean, a typical way that innovation happens in large companies is somebody senior will champion it. And they'll get something going and they'll do an incubator or an accelerator or a lab or, you know, they have all these names for these things. And they set up this group of people and they're so excited and it's all going to be fantastic. And and this senior person watches them, right, and protects them from the corporate overlords and, and, you know, finds them budget and finds them people. And it's all super exciting. And then three years in, this one person leaves or the company reorganizes or there's a budget crunch and no, 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 we're not spending all that money on this stupid accelerator. What is it? produced. And all the, you know, the innovation effort gets dismantled only to find, you know, a couple of years later, somebody else takes an interest in innovation. And now we're going to start an accelerator and it's going to be great. And I just see this so much, you know, so this episodic on again, off again, innovation, what I would argue when you've built it as a real proficiency, it's built the same way you would build quality, the same way you would build training, the same way you would build, you know, anything that needs to be a robust organizational system. And it's not dependent on one person and it's not dependent on the flavor of the day. It's something that you really do every day as part of who you are. Um, and, you know, Amazon, of course, would be an interesting example of a company that really, really believes in this. You know, they talk about thinking of making decisions today in the you know third year or fourth year from now. And and that as they get bigger, their mistakes are going to get bigger. And, you know, Bezos, when he was still CEO and the current person is uh, definitely very much trying to make this something that lasts beyond an individual's uh, preferences. You raised a very good point in here. In fact, Lida Glyptis, which I had previously on this podcast, made a similar point specifically around that the commitment to innovation is often mostly needed, not just in year one, but in year three, when a project has already gained traction and it's time to move to the next phase. Anchoring on our conversation, I wonder what are the different inflection points uh, you are seeing around us those days or we might see in the foreseeable future? Uh, I do think there are four together right now that are fundamentally reshaping a lot of expectations for the way things work. So the pandemic, obviously, climate crisis is an ongoing one that's getting harder and harder to ignore. Economic shift, in some cases crisis, in some cases surplus, uh, brought about in part by COVID. Uh, and of course, a, a struggle for justice, you know, racial justice, gender justice all over the world. And those four things coming together, I think, have brought us to quite an extraordinary moment. Uh, certainly here in the U.S., you know, we're seeing policy proposals people would not have suggested ever without a crisis of this magnitude behind them. I mean, it would, just wouldn't have been 
politically possible. Um, and so I think we're seeing boldness. I think we're seeing a certain amount of courage of people saying, you know, no, the, what, whatever we were doing before did not work. And now we really need to chart a bold path forward. And I think there are pockets of that, you know, all over the world. And, and so I think these four things have really been an accelerant. Now, what exactly they will do, I, I couldn't say. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a huge believer in prediction because it's so, you know, the world could change tomorrow, as we've learned a lot over the last year. Um, but I do believe in preparedness and I do believe in mental preparedness. So the way that I like to approach this is you take a couple of things you're uncertain about in the future and you juxtapose them on each other with different future conditions of each. And that gives you a two by two, right? And what you want to try to do is let's talk about what each of those future worlds might look like. Then you work backward and you say, well, okay, if one of my possibilities is scenario A, what would have to be true if scenario A was going to come about? So if I go back to my baby boom, baby bust example, well, what would have to be true, you know, if we were going to have a baby bust and what evidence should we see? What, what evidence would we look for if we thought we weren't? So it frees you up from this need to be right. And it per gives you permission to speculate, you know, tell stories, to play a little bit, to look at unconventional data, and it prepares your mind. So now when you see a piece of evidence, you're in a mode of saying, hey, I've got four scenarios in my mind. Where does that piece of evidence take me? Rather than I've picked a scenario and I'm damned if I'm going to be wrong. And, you know, that piece of evidence doesn't fit the picture I've painted. So I'm going to ignore it. Very human, but not very um, sensible if you're trying to strategically prepare yourself for the future. Preparation is a key uh, let me ask you just one more question here. Uh, from the many great examples you share in your book, what is your favorite of them all? You're asking me to choose between my two. <laughs> oh, that's hard. Um, I, I kind of like Klockner, uh, the Klockner example, which is the case of an old line German metals company completely transforming itself uh, by its digital agenda. And the reason I like it is because it's so unlikely. Like, I mean, I could talk about Flatiron Health, which is this startup that these two young entrepreneurs started, and that's all great. But, you know, Klockner really overcame amazing odds to do what it's done. And I give so much credit to its uh, Gisbert Rule, who's their CEO. I think that's probably a, a really great transformation story. It is indeed a great transformation story. Conscious of time, I just uh, want to move to what I call a quick round, really just two questions, which you can answer in one minute or so. Uh, the first one is, what is the best advice you'd give for entrepreneurs or corporate innovators? Um, emphasize learning, emphasize learning. And I think emphasize learning as fast as you can and as cheaply as you can. Uh, it's in the early stages anyway. Um, you know, in both cases, you're dealing with, again, narrowing down that range of uncertainties that you have relative to knowledge that you have. Emphasize learning. I really like that one. Uh, I'm going to ask you one which is also related to entrepreneurship, given also you written about that. How would you define entrepreneurial mindset? Entrepreneurial mindset to me is a mindset around growth. It's a mindset that says I'm interested in what's coming, not what is past, and very open to the pursuit of new opportunities, regardless of the resources that you've currently got. It's a, it's an opening, curious mindset. I like that, growth and curiosity. Uh, and the last question uh, for me here, what is your favorite innovation or strategy book you've recently uh, read? Um, I mean, I have so many, so it, but so don't be offended, anybody who I don't mention. I really loved Safi Bakal's Loom Shots um, and loved it for a lot of different reasons. But one of the things I particularly appreciated about it was he talks about the difference between what the intention was when you create an innovation 
and what its effects were after it's in the market. And that's a really underreported fact. So take take the case of disruptive technologies, right? That disruptive technologies, which the, the theory is they come in at the low end and then gradually they get better and better and re- displace something else at the top. And we can see that in retrospect, but when they're being invented, you don't know that it's a disruptive technology. So he talks about transistors, right? replacing vacuum tubes. The guys that invented the transistor were not trying to be disruptive. They were trying to make better electronic switches. So the intention and what happened were two different things. And I think Safi points that out really nicely. Loan Shot is such a good book. And interestingly enough, my previous guest, uh, Chris Caldridge, actually suggested this same book. Uh, It is indeed a great read. And I do hope we will have Safi to speak about it in one of the upcoming episodes. Rita, that is all for me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you today, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. Just before we leave, I'd like to ask our listeners to rate and subscribe to this show so that you don't miss any episode, but also to help others discover this show and benefit from this podcast. You can listen to this show on all your favorite podcast network, whether that's Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other network. If you want more information, you can check out my website. That is www.lessonsofinnovation.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.